Section 14 of Red Rubber, the story of the rubber slave trade in the Congo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Red Rubber, the story of the rubber slave trade in the Congo, by Edmund Dean Morrell. Is there a redeeming feature, Justice and the Friendly Critic, Part 2. When the Commission of Inquiry entered the Moringa Territory, they found a state of affairs which dismayed them. Here were established missionaries who were determined that the commissioners should drink the cup of horrors, which was their daily experience, to the dregs. From a radius of fifty miles, multitudes of natives flocked to the riverside and told their stories of unspeakable woe before the visibly impressed court held on board a specially chartered government vessel. Wholesale massacres, murders, torture, rape, mutilation, depopulation, impoverishment, misery profound, the shameful tale flowed on until the end of the week, but when a tithe of the tragedy had been unfolded, the commissioners, sickened and appalled, said that they had heard enough. Their verdict is on record." Yet the managing director of the company on the spot, directly responsible for this welter of abomination, was allowed to leave the country untouched. The assistant manager stepped into his shoes. The district commissioner and his assistants were not troubled. The officer commanding the troops in the concession was retained, promoted, and has since been engaged in prosecuting one of the missionaries for libel and one of the directors in Europe was appointed by the king a member of his Commission of Reforms. The European management of that company includes the Grand Marshal of King Leopold's court and several high Congo officials. Its president is a senator. The Congo government holds half the shares, and the net profits of the concern in six years have amounted to £730,000 on a paid-up capital of under £10,000, each share of a nominal value of £20, of which the Congo government possess 1000 having received in that period dividends totaling £295. Where in history will you find such a record, and what can be said of the judicial system under which such a record is established? We have seen how the governor-general controls the judicial machinery, that he can interfere in prosecutions, suspend them, and what not. Executive interference with the law takes many forms, and is further freed from impediments by the abnormal relations pertaining between Belgium under the present government, which has been in power for twenty years, and the king's autocracy on the Congo. Everything, as I have said, connected with the Congo, is abnormal. The officers of the Belgian army, serving in the Congo army, continue to draw their salaries from the public funds of Belgium. Strictly speaking, no such officer accused of committing crime on the Congo can be tried there. A Belgian tribunal is alone entitled to try the case, and he should be immediately recalled. The Congo Free State stands towards Belgium in the light of a foreign power. Its headquarters are in Brussels, true, but legally it is non-existent in Belgium, 
and no tribunal outside the Belgian courts could sit in Belgium upon a Belgian subject accused of crime abroad without violating the constitution of Belgium. As the majority of the high officials of the Congo executive, district commissioners, inspectors, chefs de zones, and so on, are military men, it will be seen how important from King Leopold's point of view, as sovereign of the Congo state, it is that the responsibility for atrocities should not be brought home to them personally. In this, he is assisted by the character of the Congo judicial system on the one hand, and the complicity of the present Belgian government on the other. An interesting light was thrown upon this aspect of Congo abnormity by the Tilkins case in 1903. Tilkins was a sub-lieutenant in the Belgian army, and a lieutenant in the Congo army. He was in command of one of those sub-posts in the Ruby Well Rubber District, and secured in three years 40,000 pounds worth of India rubber. After he had returned to Belgium, charges of atrocity were preferred against him in the Congo. After consulting the senior governor-general, who at that particular time was on leave in Brussels, he returned to the Congo to meet them. Although his indictment included charges of a terrible, though not unusual, nature, he was let out on bail of two hundred pounds. Convinced that he would not obtain justice on the Congo, but would serve as a scapegoat for the sins of his superiors, he stowed away on a homecoming steamer. There is little doubt that his departure was facilitated by the local executive, which was not at all anxious to try him. Upon his return to Belgium, he demanded a public trial. His demand was refused. He was tried by default on the Congo and sentenced to ten years. He thereupon handed his dossier to Monsieur Vandervelde. It contained written orders from his superior officers on the Congo, the high executive officials, demonstrating conclusively that the usual pressure had been exercised upon him to increase his rubber output, with the habitual result. These Monsieur Vandervelde read out to the House, and rightly regarding this as a test case, called upon the Belgian government to grant Tilkins's request for a trial in Belgium. The minister responsible to the Department of Defense made no sign, however. What would have transpired at a public trial? Tilkins's defense would have been the plea of military obedience to instructions, required of all soldiers, which rendered atrocities upon a population already maddened by monstrous demands and only kept down by main force, necessary, and indeed requisite. The letters of Commandant Verstraten, see section 1, would have been put in. In the cross-examination of this official and his predecessor in office, Commandant Mayus, the letters received by them from the acting governor-general, Monsieur Félix Fuchs, and their letters to him must necessarily have been produced, and he himself cited to appear." But this correspondence would have been sufficient and more than sufficient. It would have had the effect of the explosion of a powder magazine under the edifice of moral and material regeneration. Responsibility for the rubber slave trade would have been traced to its fountainhead. Thus it is that Belgian officers, executive officials of the Congo administration, 
are prosecuted on the Congo only when circumstances make prevention absolutely impossible, as in the case of Lieutenant Massard, whose arrest the Commission of Inquiry itself demanded by telegraph to Boma after hearing the evidence of Monsieur Scrivener and native witnesses at Boma. Thus it is that not a single Belgian officer has ever been sentenced by the Congo courts, save by prearranged default. Thus it is that not a single Belgian, even accused of the most abominable crimes on the Congo, has ever been proceeded against in Belgium. Thus it is that when missionaries denounce the atrocities of some commandant or officer in the Congo army, either the accused party is given a kindly hint and proceeds down river on sick leave en route for Europe, while with great ostentation a judicial commission ascends the river to inquire into the charge, or, if matters, owing to the action of some honest magistrate, have reached the stage when to save the face of the law the officer has been summoned to Boma, surveillance is relaxed by superior order, pending the examination of his dossier, and the accused discreetly embarks for Europe. Or if a stage still farther advanced has been reached before executive interference can be exercised with befitting secrecy and decency, the accused is liberated on bail, stows away, unbeknown, of course, to all, and when the same steamer reaches the Congo on her next voyage, the face of the law is saved by a summons being taken out against the captain for harboring a passenger not noted on the official passenger list, a fine of twenty francs inflicted, and a judiciously edited report of the proceedings finds its way into the European press through the usual channel, providing yet another example of the impeccability of the Congo courts. This judicial pantomime is not played for the benefit of officers of the Belgian army only. Officials of the rubber trusts, who are believed to possess incriminating documents, are beneficiaries equally with the former. In one recent case, the departure of an official from a particular spot on the upper river, synchronized with the arrival of an assistant attorney with a criminal dossier concerning him. He had left for Europe long before the investigation was complete. A final illustration of the methods of criminal jurisprudence on the Congo may be briefly touched upon. The native has been taught by sad experience to avoid the Congo courts as a pestilence. Natives who have been induced by the missionaries to testify against some official have been compelled to travel immense distances, in some cases upwards of 1,000 miles, to Boma. There they have been detained for months, in the case of one recent batch, for eight months, and there most of them have died, or come back only to die. Change of diet, homesickness, to both of which the native is peculiarly susceptible, coupled with neglect and lack of nourishment, have been mainly attributable to this mortality, deplored in the report of the Commission of Inquiry. So disgraceful has been the treatment of native witnesses, even at Boma, that in a published communication to the Congo Reform Association, dated August 17th last year, Lord Lansdowne, after referring to the reports, quote, of the severe privations from which these natives are suffering, end quote, 
received by His Majesty's Government from the acting British consul at Boma, intimated that instructions had been sent to that official, quote, to give the native witnesses such assistance as he properly can in their efforts to obtain work during their detention at Boma, end quote. A kindly act very greatly to the lordship's credit. Thus, from a sentiment of ordinary humanity, allied to a sense of philanthropic responsibility, insomuch as the charges brought by a British subject against a Congo official had led to the summoning of native witnesses to Boma, a British foreign minister instructed a British consular officer in the capital of the Congo Free State to try and find work for these natives, in order that they should procure the wherewithal to feed themselves, whom the public prosecutor had caused to be conveyed 450 miles from their homes as witnesses for the prosecution in the public trial of a Congo official. These men were the relatives of victims of the rubber slave trade from which the Congo executive reaps millions, but that executive could not afford to feed them while serving as witnesses on one of its farcical trials. Quote, the mere word boma terrifies them. Thus, at the present moment, it is very difficult, if not impossible, in many regions of the Upper Congo, to induce the natives to testify before the courts. The inhabitant of the Upper Congo, summoned as a witness, flies to the forest. He must be treated as a criminal, hunted, chained sometimes, in any case subjected to force, to conduct him from his village to the court. End quote. It is not I who wrote that. It is the commissioners of King Leopold. Personally, I can see no redeeming feature in the justice which the Congo administration has introduced into the Congo Basin, where impunity for the guilty is ensured, and where the mere act of complaining spells for the native exile or death. Rather do I agree with Professor Cartier that, quote, it is organized and systematic protection of injustice, end quote. And I fail for my part to see how any reasonable human being can arrive at an opposite conclusion. I now come to the fifth and last point, that is, the statements of travelers and others favorable to the Congo state as regards its treatment of the natives, which have been given to the world. A year ago, an extensive analysis of this evidence would have been necessary. Happily, it is no longer so, for the report of the Congo Commission has put the blatant section of the Congo state's defenders out of court. We have our revenge for the contumely they sought to throw upon us, in the ridicule which the report of the Commission of Inquiry has cast upon their impartial investigations." With that class of apologist and defender of the Congo state, British public opinion has done for good and all. To recall their travesty of facts would be to do them too much honor. They had their brief term of self-advertisement, they succeeded for a time in helping to confuse the public mind, they delayed a little the manifestation of the truth, and so helped to prolong the agony of a people." their consciences are, doubtless, satisfied. Apologists and defenders of the class which, producing no evidence, chose, for reasons best known to themselves, to re-echo the mendacities issued by the press bureau, 
or in the official publications of the Congo administration, are no better off. The report of the Commission of Inquiry has disposed of them also. A section of the Catholic priesthood and laity, especially the former, which, in a measure quite sincerely, saw in our campaign of mercy an attack upon Catholic institutions and upon a Catholic country, must now be convinced of their double error by the statements of the religious press of Belgium, the debates in the Belgian chamber, and the report of the commission. If not, it must be either because these documents are inaccessible to them, or because they refuse to admit that they were misled. In either case, further attacks upon the reform movement from that quarter would be deprived of raison d'etre. A section of Irish feeling is hostile, and probably always will be hostile. Men whose judgment is as distorted as Mr. McKean's, who would prefer King Leopold to Lord Aberdeen at Dublin Castle, are beyond the reach of argument. But they do not count. Whatever feelings Irishmen may entertain towards England and Englishmen in the abstract or in the concrete, the cause of English nationalism has nothing to gain by identifying itself with the beneficiaries of the rubber slave trade. Distrust, suspicion, even hatred of England, is permissible in an Irishman. But love for the emperor of the Congo in the Irish breast is an incongruity. Moreover, these Irish admirers of the sovereign of the Congo state are destitute of evidence. They merely re-echo the absurdities which reach their hands through the ramifications of the press bureau. The only evidence we owe to an Irishman is the evidence of a gallant gentleman and man of honor, Roger Casement. These lucubrations of certain continental and Irish-American journals subsidized by the press bureau are similarly innocent of evidential value and beneath discussion. The area of controversy, so far as contradictory evidence is concerned, is indeed narrowed down to a few, a very few, observers who have journeyed through or sojourned in parts of the Congo state not visited by the Commission of Inquiry, and who have personally seen nothing to complain of. This, in any case, is not, one may remark, a matter which is in the least surprising. It would be quite possible to travel from London to Stanley Falls and back again, and observe little or nothing offensive, particularly if you happen to be a person of some distinction, average superficiality, and no experience of African conditions. Traveling from Antwerp to Boma in one of Sir Alfred Jones's steamers, you would be perfectly comfortable, and any unfavorable opinions you might have formed of the bulk of the African regenerators on board, especially if you were conversant with the French tongue, would be dissipated by the courtesy of the higher officials and the geniality of the English captain. Arrived at Boma, you would be impressed with the fine buildings, the coquettish air of this administrative center, the general signs of activity and military punctiliousness prevailing. At Matadi, the termination of your ocean journey, this impression would strengthen at sight of the railway skirting the arid flanks of Palabala, the workshops, the engineering establishments, and so on. A two-day's journey on the narrow-gauge line winding in amazing curves amid fine scenery 
would probably fill you, and rightly so, I have ever rendered homage, as they say in Belgium, to the perseverant energy and determination of the Belgian engineer, Robert Tice, who constructed this line in the teeth of great obstacles, it was a triumph of individual skill and of individual enterprise. It was not the Congo government which built that railway, but a private company. With admiration. The uninhabited countryside might set him wondering, but he would probably be ignorant of the fact that what is now desert was once a thriving and populous region, and no one certainly would enlighten him. The end of his railway journey would bring him to Leopoldville, another center of considerable activity, with many stern-wheelers, more engineering shops, churches, etc. He would not pause to think how its 3,500 inhabitants were fed, and he would not be told that the people within a radius of 60 miles were rapidly disappearing under the crushing burden of the food taxes. And so on up to Stanley Falls in a government vessel, passing not a few fine stations on the riverside, not a few steamers and other tokens of civilization. To return from this digression to the favorable evidence existing. In the Lado Enclave, the strip of territory on the Nile leased to King Leopold by Lord Rosebery twelve years ago, a large force of troops is stationed. Several forts have been erected, the soldiers are there, a smart body of men, mostly commanded by Italian officers. Their barracks are substantial and commodious. The stations are well kept. Two British officers visiting these Congolese military and political posts have commented favorably upon their appearance. Their remarks have been spread broadcast by the press bureau, and made the most of. Curiously enough, no one in this country had suspected the existence of an evil state of affairs in this tiny strip of territory until Lord Cromer's scathing comments appeared in the White Book of 1904. Since then, information has reached me from unquestionable sources that the history of the construction of these military edifices was characterized by the usual proceedings. The Foreign Office can throw light upon it whenever it chooses to do so. I observe that Sir Charles Eliot, in his recently published volume, speaks rather favorably of these Congolese stations on the Nile, and adds, quote, It is generally said that our officers can always reduce natives to obedience by threatening to deport them to the Belgian side of the river. It is certain that there are no villages for many miles round the Belgian stations. End quote. In short, it is quite possible to speak in commendation of the armed Congo camps on the Nile without affecting the question of the wrongs of the Congo natives in the very slightest degree, and from such commendation the Congo administration is welcome to any consolation it can derive. What remains, then, as positive evidence favorable to the Congo state? The experiences of Mr. Gray and one or two other Englishmen in the employ of the Tanganyika Concessions Limited, which is engaged in exploiting the copper mines of southeastern Katanga, and the experiences of Sir Harry Johnston, who penetrated 30 miles into the Congo state territory from Uganda in 1900, and visited other parts previously. 
I need say no more on this point beyond mentioning that as these lines are written, I understand Dr. Harry Johnston will be good enough to contribute a short piece to this volume, and adding that the Congo Reform Association is proud to number him among its supporters. As for Mr. George Gray's experiences, his distinguished brother, the present British Minister for Foreign Affairs, referred to them with perfect frankness in the last debate on the Foreign Office vote. He confirmed their favorable nature, and explained that they were carefully limited to the southern extremity of the Congo state, where it might be added there is no rubber, and where the presence of a number of Englishmen, and especially an Englishman known by King Leopold to be related to the British Minister of Foreign Affairs, is in itself calculated to keep excesses in check. I will make a present to the Press Bureau of another favorable piece of testimony. It comes from a missionary acquaintance of mine, who, writing from Upoto in the early part of the present year, states, quote, Happy Upoto has been under the rule of Commandant Scardino for the past three years. It is no secret that he is not in accord with Congo state methods. Consequently, Upoto district has not been terrorized to such an extent as other parts. Commandant Scardino has ever shown himself as inclined to leniency rather than oppression, and taxes have been more frequently modified than increased. End quote. I am happy to print that paragraph concerning an Italian officer and gentleman, who, like other of his compatriots, has had the breeding and the strength of will to endeavor, amid great difficulties, to rise above the system whose unwilling servants he and they have been, and who, as a result, are detested by the Supreme Congo Executive as much as the British missionaries almost." nor are such exceptions wholly confined to Italian officers. Captain Lemaire of the Belgian army is another, and a very notable one. Poor Domes was another, but he disappeared. The officials who fall foul of the executive are curiously apt to disappear on the Congo. In the case of Domes, the agent of disappearance appears to have been a hippopotamus. The Danish Lieutenant S., very nearly did. I hope that officer's experiences may some day be published. He is highly connected, and his story would be especially interesting from the point of view of the treatment by the Congo executive of the foreign officers who have accepted appointments in the Congo army under a complete misconception of the state of affairs, and who have endured all the indignities, privations, dangers, and moral sapping which an Italian officer in a letter to me, after describing La Trite des Noirs, the black slave trade, rightly describes as La Trite des Blancs, the white slave trade. These solitary exceptions are the one bright spot in the sea of blackness, for all the riffraff of the European armies, the lost souls, as the Italians say, have been recruited by King Leopold's agents to carry out his infamous policy. Blackguards were required to perform that dirty work, and the Congo Basin has been flooded with blackguards, converted in many instances to fiends incarnate by the tasks they have been set to do. Nor is it only among army officers that exceptions have occurred. Who shall tell the tale of the miseries of the wretched Belgian clerk or artisan, 
ill-bred, ignorant, but with decent instincts, who has gone out to the Congo to the tune of the Brabanson, footnote, the Belgian National Anthem, and footnote, filled with patriotic imaginings, only to find himself thrust into some outstation and told to get rubber, plunged suddenly into an earthly hell. Missionaries have had such men coming to them half frantic after a few weeks' stay, begging and imploring their assistance, and a shot, self-inflicted, has often enough abruptly terminated a career which in Europe might at least have been respectable. No one who has probed deep down into this cesspool of iniquity and naked human passions, or who understands the workings of the monstrous growth which civilization has allowed to spring up in Central Africa, blames the agents of the system, but the system itself. The miserable tools are to be pitied, brutes as many of them are, the déclassé, the failures, the offscourings of Europe. It is the beneficiaries that should be pilloried, the modern slavers of Africa who sit at home and pocket the dividends. Above all, that one will, the will of a megalomaniac, which controls, rules, dominates every wheel and rivet of the machine, drunk with absolutism, impervious to every feeling of humanity, who drives his daughter from her mother's deathbed, flaunts with ostentation the irregularities of his private life before all men, and rakes in millions from the anguish of his miserable African slaves. End of section 14